Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, Simon Smith, a BAFTA and Emmy award-winning editor, joins us to talk about his work on episode two of The Third Day. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode, so make yourself comfortable as we jump into the conversation with Simon. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Simon. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for coming on. And I'm excited to talk about your latest project, the second episode on the third day. I think we should warn people as well that potential spoilers so that let people watch it first and then come back to us to sort of hear, hear about your work on it, really. Yeah, for sure. No, it'll be more fun that way. It won't make much sense otherwise. It won't be a spoiler. It just won't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, the the show is a little bit confusing, but I, yeah. that's the whole point of it. It it's let the audience piece things together and slowly put clues together. It's one of those where you might have to watch twice to pick up on things that you might have missed the first time around. Yeah, I think people. So I've spoken to my mom about it when she watched it, and my wife about it when she watched it, and I think people assume that they've missed stuff because they're left so confused they're like oh I don't understand it I'm like no 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 you're not meant to understand it don't worry (laughs) right like you you haven't missed it that's how you're meant to feel about it but don't worry it it, and it all comes around and it all brings itself back together so it's okay don't don't spoil the other episodes for me I'm I'm, I really Mm -hmm. do want to see what happens I I have a slight inkling but I'll worry about that when the next episode comes out and uh, hopefully I'll be right. Probably won't be, but we'll see. I guess I want to start as well. When this sort of project comes about and you have to edit a show that has certain themes like grief or is going for a certain feel, do you ever watch similar films or TV shows to sort of get an idea of how you're going to approach the project? Like, that's so important to me. I watch so much reference material and films that have been recommended and even things that I go and look for myself. I'll try and watch everything. Like, I love watching stuff. You know, I've watched two two movies today just at home for, like, kind of personal reference of, of, of things that I might like to do. So that's a bit that I look forward to, you know? Like, if we've got a project coming up, it gives me an excuse to find a load of films that I wouldn't ordinarily watch. I'll try and find out from the director what films they've got as reference. I'll even try and find out from the director what films they've seen recently that they really like, you know, so that I can get a sense of taste and stuff like that. So, yeah, for this one, you know, definitely went went back and looked at a lot of classic grief horror, <laughs> if, that's what, uh, if that's what we want to call it. The show does give very much Wicker Man vibes and Donald Sutherland film, I think it's called Don't Look Now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Wicker Man wasn't one of our references, but I did go back and watch both versions of The Wicker Man. I went back and watched a film called Rosemary's Baby. And then I spent quite a lot of time going over the film Don't Look Now with Donald Sutherland in the Nicholas Rogue film. Thematically, and even the storyline is similar and, 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 and has the same ideas in it. Don't Look Now is a man whose child has died and he's going through a, a, a breakdown and, and is grieving and mourning the death of his son. 
oh sorry of his of his daughter in that film and that's what the third day is about like sam uh, played by jude law has had the death of his child and it's really his grieving process through that and both in in don't look now donald sutherland's character goes to venice and kind of like lives through it in venice and our character sam goes to this island of oc off the coast in essex and you know we follow him there but yeah so they, they those were like you know really key references for us and you know an incredible film don't look now is a, a brilliant brilliant case study for for editors especially well having discussions early on with directors do you sit down together with storyboards and he sort of say okay this like go through the script beat for beat being like okay so this will this scene i want this take to be a minute long and then we'll cut it here and then go from and so on and so forth no no like i've not had an experience like that on like a, a lot more of the time you don't really spend that much time talking about it you might have a a meeting in the interview where you discuss what you're what i'm interested in what they're interested in um, and then you might have another chat after that, but you certainly wouldn't, you know, go through the script beat for beat. You kind of pick that up from the rushes when they come in each day. But on this project, The Third Day, it was a director called Mark Munden, who I've worked with a lot before, you know. So I first met Mark when he directed a series called Utopia. So, so Mark Munden has, has helped me with a lot of my career progression. So on Utopia, I was the assistant editor and then when they did Utopia Series 2 and Mark did that, they bumped me up to Assembly Editor. And then they did a series called National Treasure with uh, Robbie Coltrane and Julie Waters and Andrew Riseborough in it. And on that, I got bumped up to Editor. And then Mark did another series. He just did an episode of a of a anthology series called Electric Dreams. And I went and worked with him on that. Then the third day came along. So. I've known Mark now for probably six, six or seven years professionally working together and it was great to have that opportunity to work with him again and like he phoned me up and he told me all about the project really early on like told me what the themes were what his ideas for the project were just over the phone and it was one of those calls where um I didn't know it was coming so I think I was like outside just pacing around and like on the street in London like trying to take all this in and remember all this stuff that he's saying and then when we started filming, Mark has a relationship with his editor, any editor who he works with, where he calls the edit every day. So he'll phone us up either on his morning on his way into work or on his evening on his way home from work. And we'll talk for maybe half an hour to an hour about everything that's been shot that day and what he thinks about it and what I think about it. So that's kind of how those conversations happen with him. It was very sort of a hands-on approach by him. Basically, it sounds like a director who's very well prepared and knows what he wants in terms of sitting down and discussing things after a long day of shooting as well. Yeah, yeah, I guess he does. Like he, he has a big, you know, he's, he's brilliant at knowing what the project is. But we experiment, I experiment more with Mark, you know, than, than anyone. And we, and we sit together and experiment together. So his process... Every director is different. You know, the job before was the complete opposite. Mark's process is that he will expect me to have watched the dailies. He'll call me and say, how are the dailies? What did I think of the dailies? And then I can ask him a bunch of questions. I've made notes of things that I want to talk to him about from the dailies. When I tell him that, 
then that evening he'll go home and watch the same dailies that I've just watched and he'll make, I haven't got them here, I don't think, but he'll make handwritten notes for every slate and take, what he likes about every single slate and take as he's watching it. Then he'll take a picture of that with his phone and send it to me as like a scan document. So then I am, I have every day, because a, a shoot can be quite intense and if you don't do it as you go along, you never have those thoughts or headspace to do it later to catch up so we make sure that we do it daily but i'll have a a a reference of what he's thinking what takes he likes why he's doing stuff and then i kind of piece it together and then you get the next day's rushes so you have to keep on that conveyor belt and then when we get into the the director's cut the fine cut whatever however you want to describe it when he's finished the shoot mark's process that he'll do with me or with any of his editors is to start at the very beginning. He won't watch the cut, not through anyway. He'll start at the very beginning, episode one, scene one, or episode two, scene one, and we'll we'll watch that scene together, and then we'll dive in and fine-tune that entire scene and experiment with different ways of doing it. And then we'll go on to scene two, scene three, scene four, and then you'll slowly work for an entire part of the film and get to um, how how he had it in his head and then we go through and we do it all again and again and again. <laughs> that's still pretty, that's still interesting way to sort of, instead of watching it throughout the whole way and yeah, making no, notes, it's but, just scene by scene and fine tuning it. Um, yeah, but you can get fatigued if you watch a thing too many times in its run. So he tries not to watch it too many times. Like we fine tune it and, and work our way through, but he doesn't, he, do, he wants to make sure that he keeps that first viewing as, as pure as he can. But the, the working day, you know, Mark and I will get into the cutting room. You know, I'll probably get in at about eight. Mark will be in by like 8.39. And then we'll sit together, like right next to each other, looking at everything and talking about everything all the way through until six in the evening. He's not one to really give you some rough ideas and leave you to it he, he's someone who you bounce off each other all day long you know and I loved it like I, I, I love working with Mark he's a he's a good mate as well and he's brilliant you know like he's been a real mentor and has, has taught me loads so it's great to to have that as your job like working in, in that room together yeah I guess it helps when you do have a good working relationship and friendship because as I said you bounce off one another and I think it makes it easier as well if you've got suggestions. You're not afraid to sort of say, actually, maybe if we tried this or if we tried that, because then it makes you, you, you feel comfortable with one another. So I guess I want to get into as well is, because the show is very focused on Sam's point of view, Sam is played by Jude Law, did that make cutting the show harder because you're just showing it through one point of view or did it make it easier to, for it to be focused? So... I guess it's not so for this project it's not really so much about even a a point of view like it's not you're not you are seeing OC in this island and you're seeing it with Sam and through Sam's eyes and and the and the, the 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 literal experience of him arriving and meeting people you are on that journey with him but that's not what it's about the series or the episode that I was working on, the, the, the first three episodes, they are about this man's grief, right? So 
you're more looking or I, what, what I was trying to do was to find a way of, of communicating the feeling of grief to the audience, to the viewer, you know, what, like I, I try and think about it and, you know, and talk to Mark about it. It's grammar, it's editing grammar, right? So we're trying to create the grammar of grief, right? What does grief feel like? What does grief when you, when you edit something to convey grief, how would you edit that? What sounds would you use? What pictures would you use? What, you know, how are you doing that, the performance? So we're trying to create a grammar of grief. There's other great examples where they do similar things, like when Mark and I worked together before on National Treasure, the idea there was the grammar of paranoia, right? And there's the famous... Uh, Pakula's paranoia trilogy from like the 1970s and how he created a sense of paranoia in you know the cinematography and the cutting style and everything to make you feel as a viewer paranoid and then take something else like you know a jump scare horror movie how do you convey fear or, or like or, or, or horror to to a viewer so what we're trying to do here is it's not so much about giving someone a point of view of something it's giving someone a feeling of grief. And I bet that sounds really wanky, doesn't it? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's, I, no. I totally understand what you mean. So you kind of also answered my next question, uh, which I was actually going to use the phrase that you use, grammar of grief. Grammar uh, of grief, yeah. And um, I, I totally understand what you mean because I guess the way that I see it is that Sam is a surrogate to like the audience in where he is, but then also because you don't know that much about him, you're kind of feeling various things that are happening to him. So we find out uh, that his kid was murdered. And even though he sort of expresses himself that he's moved on, there's always that. There's that really powerful scene at the beginning where he parks in this episode one, where he parks up and he drops a piece of clothing into the river where the child was found. And you do feel that because it's, he mentions it later on that he does it because it's a piece of him letting go of what's happened. So I guess that's a piece of him losing the grief, but then being back on the Island, not back on and being on the Island, sorry, kind of brings it all back up because there's little signs and hints of that. It's also shown in editing is when he sees, sees a kid similar to his child. We don't know if it's actually his child. And then he runs through, I guess, like through hedges in, in between two hedges. And I'm stealing your tweet here. But I guess the way that you were showing that was to sort of show how jumbled up his mind was. Yeah, so the, so the guy's having a bit of a mental breakdown, right? And I think all of what we're doing is realizing that on on screen so uh, now don't look now is fantastic reference for this you you do the same with donald sutherland's character you know you you kind of see him going a bit mad and and you start to doubt everything you don't know what's real you don't know what's not real you don't know what is there to make you have these nightmares or these these thoughts and the third day, Dennis Kelly wrote it, you know, he's, he's come up with this incredible script where actually Sam's mental state leads into the real world as well, right? So not just is he chasing this little boy around the island, 
in search and mourning of his dead child. But there's a bit at the start of the episode where he's having this nightmare and these visions of this like camper van. And then later on in what we assume is like the actual world, he comes across this camper van, you know, that he's been having these, these nightmares about. So you start and this camper van that he comes across has got these like artifacts from his dream, you know, this, this, this padlock that was on the door and stuff like that. So it's, it's this blurring of what is real and what is happening and what is, you know, part of his mental experience. Now I, I, I feel that we wanted as well, you kind of bounce around the Island a bit when you're watching, especially episode two, there's a scene at the end of, uh, on on Sky in the UK, it's in it's in parts. You know, advert breaks in America on HBO. It's it's just one long feed, I think. But at the end of part one, we just find him in this forest, and he's just wandering around this forest. And then actually, he he disappears behind a tree. Sam, like Jude Law, Sam walks behind this tree and he's gone. And that is another part that is like, did that really happen, or is that just part of his mental state? Is like. Is this literal? Is this is this him exploring an island? And really, to me, whilst it is part of the story and he is exploring this island, these are all representations, artistic representations, you know, filmic representations of his own mental state, you know, and, and him kind of like moving around this island and having these moments. And, and you mentioned the bit where he's running through the bushes and then suddenly he's in this open field we just cut and he's in this open field um it is meant to be that you're that the island is real and he is there but the island is also a metaphor for his mental breakdown and his mental state at that time and all of that is is you know what we're trying to do with the editing (laughs) but that's the thing as well is when you have three sort of processes when it comes to the story so you have what's written on the on the pages what you have presented on the screen and then what you have in the edit, because I'm guessing this wasn't shot in sequence when you're bringing it all together and sort of mishmashing it. It's kind of, even though the writer and director have decided on how it looks and how it feels, I guess it's down to the editor to sort of really finesse all of that and to serve the story and then be faithful to the, what's being adapted. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, it's not that different from how it was scripted. Dennis wrote an incredible script. And, De- and Dennis also wrote Utopia, which, you know, I worked on with Mark many years before. Like, I think we, we probably cut some scenes out for time more than anything. But it's, it's very much in the order and it's very much as it was written. I think what we're trying to do as an extension to what they filmed is you know, is, is really try and is create, I know, I'm going to say it again, but create that grammar, right? So when they're shooting, it's like they're collecting all the, all the words or all the thoughts that they want to, that they want to show. And we're just trying to like turn that into an entire almost poem really for how this guy's is going through this. I, I loved it. You know, I, I love that creative opportunity to to do that and to explore these things and we we you know we were pushing it all the way up until 
the very end and i don't think it ever got to a point where we're like okay we found this now we, we were always trying to find can we push this further can we do not do mad shit for the sake of doing mad shit but like what else can we do that that is out there and further and takes what we're trying to do further and then we'd even feed that back into the other episodes like i although i was the editor on episode two i watched all of the rushes from episodes one and three i'd I'd been you know working with the editors of episodes one and three it was it was very much um I, w- I didn't ever feel, oh, I'm just coming on to do this one episode. I felt like I was coming on to be part of this team that were doing three episodes, you know. And whilst I was focused on one and there was another episode, uh, another editor focused on episode one, another editor focused on episode three, we, we were trying to do this together. And certainly there was, so at the beginning of episode two and at the end of episode one, he has these nightmares, these nightmare visions. And, you know, nightmares are not a new thing. Like, People have cut nightmares into TV and film going back forever. But it was making sure that we kind of did that together and bounced off each other. Um, There's this brilliant sound effect where when Sam opens his mouth, he's he's shouting something. And in the script, I think it said that he, he shouted and no words came out. And when they recorded it, I don't think he had any words coming out. But then one of the other editors, he just tried putting on like, he, he was great with like tr- trying out sounds and, and, and fucking with different sounds. He, I think he put some foxes on it or some like cat sounds or yeah, like some fox like barking. I don't know if you've ever heard foxes early in the morning outside your house. I have. We, we get a lot of them around here. So it was like finding that to fit Jude's mouth as he's opening his mouth. And then I did I did try this one effect which i loved but we didn't keep in there where i just basically strobed the image like 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 cut just one frame one frame backwards and forwards and and then maybe ramped it so it it slowed down between the two strobing things i really liked it we 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 never ended up using that there was um mark is one is is very fond of lucky accidents or glitches that kind of come about that you don't really create on purpose but it's like okay let's use those because it's so hard because you can't make those up you can't just decide those and there's just one right in in the middle of that nightmare where i think i'd sped something up or slowed it down something like that and the avid had through doing that created like a single black frame where it just flashes black for a moment and we were like, oh, we, we need to keep that. That black frame, when it happens, is unsettling, is is not deliberate, or is not, it was, obviously we kept it in, it was deliberate, but it was not designed. It, it was an, an, an accident, and uh, you know, a, a random accident. So it was then, all the way through, noted on, on the edit, keep this, keep this, because inevitably when you get into the offline or the you know the next stage of the edits they see a flash black frame and they're like oh that must be an accident let's take that out so all of those little things we try and keep in there and and, and make part of it really it's always cool to hear about the little accidents that happen when people are creating things or uh last minute sort of changes and it's weird to think as well where 
so even the just a little black frame for a split second just completely changes your perspective on how you're doing things or how it's just like actually this is like the cherry on top of what we've just done and it also adds to the show because the show has that like eeriness and even the way that it's been graded to make it look very bright and I guess in a weird way it's slightly unsettling on the eyes because it feels like a utopia sort of place but you know that something utopian isn't happening and like the images as well where you see certain reds pop up and oranges like they really really pop and they make it really like wow in your face in a weird way and it's also maybe chuckle a little bit is when they gave sam bright orange shoes because they just <laughs> stick out like a sore thumb but then with the color grading is that something that was decided early on how that how that would look or is that something that sort of happened whilst it was the episodes were being fine tuned finely tuned no so um for this project mark when we finished the edit you know completely finished the edit lock the edit he'll then take that in and sit with his grader you know for more time than someone would ordinarily but that's um that's because they they then create something with the grade right and and again they're trying to think how do we grade this to convey these feelings and this mood and the grade on this blows me away i think it's incredible and so out there and so crazy and does exactly what they you know that that intention with it he works with a colorist called um aiden farrell who's you know one of the best that there is Aidan also worked with us on the series Utopia. And it's funny because even now, however many years on, people still look back at Utopia and the, and the colour palette and the, and the way colour was used in that show. Uh, and it's still referenced and people, you know, loved it so much. So when I heard that Aidan was doing this as well, I was super excited. But as an editor, therefore, I, I kind of don't, I don't really get involved in in this part of it. It's kind of like, okay, this is going to be completely nuts and completely out there and like nothing you've ever seen before. And they go and do that for for several days. I mean, I, I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen how it looked finally until um, I went to a cast and crew screening. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. There's one scene they go into the woods and they're high on LSD and Mark did show me a cut one point when they were doing the grade and um, I think they sent it to me to like review a mix or something like that and in that one like all of the leaves in all of the trees while they were tripping were like this luminous pink colour like super magenta pink and I got it, and I was like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. That's amazing. I love it. And then Mark was like, oh, no, 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 that was just an experiment. That's not how we're going to do it. <laughs> and then, like, I see it again. It's like, oh, they've done it another different way. You know, they've now gone for this very dark green, but, like, with, with lots and lots of blue in it as well. Um, I love the greens in this. So Utopia, many years ago, was all about the yellow. People actually got obsessed with the yellow and, and would try and decipher what the yellow meant. In this show, the the thing that sticks out to me most is the green and how the greens are kind of like 
tinged with this very striking blue as well, especially in the trees, especially in the forests. And that to me is the color of the island really. And then Marks also, he's made lots of things go very, very black and white. Like all the skies are very black and white or that shot in episode one when he's down by the river. I think all the water is, is black and white. You know, he's taken all the color out of that. And I think that that too is working towards this sadness and grief inside of, of, of Sam, our protagonist. That's quite a cool insight though, as well, um, <laughs> I, how that works. I really, they, I really hope they do some before and after frames and put them on, on a website somewhere. You know, Aiden, Aiden, I hope uh, will win awards for this color grading. You know, I, I, I think it's so brilliant. And hopefully we'll see somewhere an article on, the process i've got like i've got the ungraded quick time i know exactly what it looked like before and after and I, I, i've even sat there and compared frames and been like wow they've they've really pushed it there and that that's down to you know many many hours pouring over it and and, and tweaking it and finding their almost like house style for these episodes the lsd scenes you're kind of walking around and just like wow like this looks gorgeous and i guess that's what you can imagine it's like being on it and especially if you're in a forest a forest area and when you talk about it's like how it's like a dark green but the but they still pop in a weird way and little bits and bobs that like pop up as well and the browns that they use at the end when you see the um mask it's weird to say because it's like it's i guess air quotes muted but it still looks really crisp and nice sort of color curious to know about as well it's like there's a number of longer takes where dialogue happens and usually it you would cut it with over the shoulder over the shoulder you know back and forth but what i noticed in episode two that doesn't happen that often and if they do it kind of you, they put the poor people into focus or they'll focus on certain parts of the actor's sort of body so you'd see their eye and their ears does that make it easier for you to pull things together <laughs> or is it just more another, I guess, stealing your phrase, creating another grammar of the story? And uh, do you ever get lost in those performances when you're cutting them? I would say we spend as much time editing those single shot scenes as we did on any of the scenes that have got lots of coverage in them. Right, it, it didn't make my job any easier. Um, it, we we spent a lot of time on them. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm flicking through them now. I think there's like five in episode two. These five, four or five like long speeches between Sam and Jess. Right. So I'll get usually, I don't know, maybe a dozen takes. Some of the takes might only be the beginning, and they might stop before they get to the end. Some of the takes they pick up halfway through and then they go to the end, so they're not complete either. So we might have some starts, we might have some ends, we might have some entire speeches. And we will, Mark will like grade those, which ones are his favourite, and I'll grade those, which ones are my favourites. And also we'll grade which bits from each one are our favourites. So we might be like, ah, oh, this one's great on these lines and this one's great on these lines. Then once we settle on uh, and you know 
in the various versions of the film that will come to these change right so this isn't like it's not like we settle on it at the beginning we might settle on one and then in a later review we'll go back and, and swap one out for a different one because of, of how it um, weights the film overall but we'll settle on one and we'll put it in then i whilst working with mark on national treasure we started using this tool the edit software that allows you to grab a moment and make it as short or as long as you want to so length make it lengthen it or or speed it up right and you can do it very in a very tangible way in the in the software where you literally just stretch out the bit of the clip right and as, as the more you stretch the clip the longer it is the more you squash it down the shorter it is so on your timeline you're you're stretching this up and down so mark and i will go through the entire scene and we will fuck with that so much you know we will we will add pauses or speed things up between the words between the breaths between the moments loads right so the duration of that so it's in in national treasure when we did it it was often during quite tense arguments between two characters and we would be trying to speed things up but without speeding up the dialogue we'd be like nipping basically frames out just just pulling frames out to get that to work so you do that process then you find that the image if it's handheld and usually it is obviously the handheld nature of it will speed up during those fast bits right so then what you have to do is go through it and stabilize those bits so that it doesn't feel sped up that the movements of the camera are not sped up then another thing we do we're shooting in 6k on this mark tries to shoot in the highest resolution camera that he's got available really uh, i remember on utopia we were shooting at 5k even long this was before like you know anyone was doing anything like that so mark will shoot in a very high resolution to allow him to tweak we're not trying to reframe the cinematographer's thing like it, it um you know huge respect for the frame but it does allow us where we need to especially during these long takes where they're kind of following around to do you know an element of reframing so in that um in that first one on the beach between sam and jess we were choosing when we might further go into Sam or when we might pull back to reveal Jess, you know, or when we might go over to Jess's face or, or, or whatever. So we're doing an element of crafting there as well. Then we will also sub in audio takes from other takes. So if we like the way that Sam said a certain phrase in one take, we might grab that bit of audio and, and squeeze it into our chosen take because of the the, the, the cadence or the intonation or, or whatever, the phrasing of the word. Then sound effects, you know, we're, we're, we're working. <laughs> Mark is very big on, on where you put bird sounds, where you put nature sounds, where you put insect sounds, how we use those, what birds we're using, water. Like uh, you won't notice, I'm sure no one will notice, but during that first, think it's during the first one where he talks about his son as he goes into the story of his son we strip all the other sound away 
even the sound of the waves on the, the lapping of the waves, I think it's in that scene, kind of disappears away and then it comes back in later. But it's, it's to, you know, really take you into his story. In terms of seeing the other character, cutting around to see the other character, I did say to Mark, like, do we, do we want to see Jess at this point? Do we want to see Jess's reaction? You know, our, our conclusion was, no, we want to just be looking at Sam and just hear this, this story. And actually, the first time he tells it, when he tells the story of what happened with his son, he's very unemotional about it all. You know, this is a story he's told a hundred times. You know, he's almost got it down on how he tells people, my son was murdered, you know. So it wasn't super emotional from him. We had emotion from her, her, you know, her breathing and her sighing and her, you know, tears or sadness from hearing this. But it, it, it was very just zoning into what he was, what the story he was telling us was. So, yeah, so in those, honestly, in those long take scenes, I'm still getting my day's work. Okay. <laughs> I guess as like average viewer, you probably watch that and be like, oh, that's quite easy. Just probably just drop it on to that's the timeline. Yeah, yeah. Pick the best one. Yeah. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Oh, it's 10 o'clock. I think it's home time. But no, it, if anything, it's like, okay, we've got, say we say we've got a day to work on each scene, right? So say we've got like... 20 days in the edit and there are 20 scenes we've got a whole day to work on each scene we'll still make sure we put in a whole day editing on that scene right? we'll still do what we can rather than get to that scene and, and, and move on quickly we'll still absolutely need it and, 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 and mould it and, and play with it yeah it was they were, they were hard work I mean you can take it to, um, to a ridiculous degree and, and take a film like 1917 where where it looks like one take right i'm sure the editor is doing a lot of work on that although you know his work is more vfx thing whereas is more of a um i guess ours is more tonal thing that we're trying to achieve um i do want to squeeze in two more questions before yeah, yeah, we wrap on. up the big climax of uh, episode two is the sort of uh, acid scene where they've dropped acid and everything seems to be really going really well until uh, the petty drops on uh, Sam and there's a sort of quick escape whilst he's uh, tripping out. What I really liked about it was the sort of pacing of everything, uh, the build up to the build up to when they thought they thought they've gotten away to then it's like a reveal of actually he's in the hands of the bad guys or the Islanders. When you're pacing through a scene like that, how do you go about sort of cutting it together to making it seem to heighten the tension, but then also to have that reveal at the end as well? So it feels like the tension's quite higher, then it kind of stops when he sees the hooded character. So we're working with a composer, Christabel Tapia, and he again, worked with us on National Treasure and worked with us on Utopia and has worked with Mark, you know, many times before. And he gave us this whole library of Morricone stuff that he kind of pulled and and selected for reference for the show. And I think, and Mark also, oh, this was brilliant. Mark is a big fan of drones and drone 
uh, and how you use drones and where you use drones in audio. So much so that this was amazing. Like Mark, I remember once we worked on a project together and he dri- he was filming up in Leeds and he, he would drive home to London on the weekend and he, with his, his assistant who was driving, he listened to a whole library of drones and similar to his um, notes on slates and takes, he gave me notes on every drone that he listened to and which ones he liked the most and why he liked them. You know, like his, his um, uh, work uh, approach for that is, is incredible. So we've, I've got, and I keep uh, a Mark Munden drone library, right, of, of you know, of his favourite drones and we kind of go back to them in a lot of shows that we work on together. So I think in, in all of that sequence, we were trying to, you know, use music and use the drones to take us through it. There's a couple of quite sharp cuts to other places. So I'm just falling through it, actually. There's, we end up in the forest and then he's like taking a piss and suddenly he's out by the caravan again, the, the fire caravan. You don't know then if he's in his own mind or if he's actually there or, or what's happened because he just appears there. And then from there he appears at a bonfire and there's no, when he's at the bonfire, there's no reference to, to the caravan or where he's just been. All of that is also an artistic approach to an acid trip or a drug trip. You know, th- this idea that you're kind of in one place and then you're, I mean, I'm, I'm referencing the, the, the one time that I took acid and, and, and how I uh, felt in that I, you know, remember being in this one place very, very present and, and experiencing, you know, this feeling many, many years ago. And then uh, suddenly I'd be somewhere else and I'd be experiencing something else very, very vividly. I'm like, wow. So it's, it's kind of like trying to do that, trying to like just snap from place to place. And, and in between the places, you don't really know. It's almost like you've lost time, like, like, like time just didn't exist. You, you float from one to the next. So there's a bit of that going on, a bit of that that we're trying to do. There's a cut as well. I love it. Um, I don't know if this was intended, but Mark shot Sam and Jess looking at the fire and then he shot it and talking and then he shot it again with Paddy and Paddy Constantine and Emily Watson in frame. So it mean, meant that we could, you know, cut from one to the other and suddenly they appeared and they were there, which is again, like reminiscent of suddenly someone's there that, that you hadn't noticed before. Really, really simple stuff, but um, but I, I think it all added up to, to an effective experience. Oh, and then there's, I'm just looking at, I'm spooling through it now. There's another bit where suddenly as she's dragging him along, we're then in this like tunnel of hanging dried fish with all of these crazy people with masks on around him. And we just like cut in on the firework flash that is going around him and, and, and use their conversation that they're having there. So all of those jumps and and feelings of being unsettled were obviously like all very deliberate in how we stitched that together and how we tried to create and convey this hallucinogenic and and drug-induced state does that answer your question i think so yeah it's just (laughs) it was just one of those but that's the thing is because you also added to things that i might have missed off as that i missed off as well that it's cutting to all these places, but then the experience that Sam is having is like, you want to give that to the audience that you're missing parts and time that 
you know, you have this conversation and as you said earlier, then bam, uh, Paddy Constantine and Emily Thomas's uh, characters appear and it's just a bit like, wait, what the hell? And you even see the fear on his face when they're pulling him up. It's like, we need to go. And he's like, where do I have to go? And then there's that really cool shot where I'm not sure how they, how they did it, but when the camera's on him and then it kind of goes, he floats up and then down again. It feels like that he's on some sort of like cherry picker sort of thing. Um, Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that cherry picker platform. Like who else would do that? Like if you were to design a scene and what was going to go on, to say we're going to lead Jude Law onto a cherry picker, lift him up and put him down again and get him to walk off at the other side. And that's going to be how we're going to do, like, I, 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 I think on the day people, like, well, I know I've spoke to people over there, they're like, really, is this how we're doing it? Is this what we're going to, is this what we're going to do? Is this what this is? It's like, yeah, 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 just do it, just do it. And it's fucking nuts. It looks like, it looks quite lo-fi in a brilliant way. And I loved it when I got, you know, when I got those rushes, rushes through. But I think um, I, I should say we we do we did have rushes and material that that did link all of those things together if we wanted it. You know, we have got Sam walking back. We or I've got Sam walking back to the campfire. You know, him walking along and to get him from the woods with the camp camper van to the bonfire. We did have. Mrs. Martin, Emily Watson's character, and and Sam, you know, leaving the bit where the the the, the dried fish are hanging down, and, and where they walk off to into the into the moon lit field and stuff like that. So that was all there. It was just as we're cutting, and we're like, okay, let's let's create this sense of psychogeography around the island and. And it is a psychogeography of his mind and how he's moving around his 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 mental state really to each of those places. Really ramped up to what was happening, and when it leads to him sort of putting up his top and his insides and everything, and he, and then at the end where you see the hooded figure and the gentleman dressed in a white suit, it just left it a really good cliffhanger. And then the credits just leading with the people at the bonfire having a good time, like nothing has happened. Yeah, except for the fact the bonfire is upside down as well. That's yeah, another. Yeah, yeah. another <laughs> <laughs> Should have mentioned that. Sorry. The, 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 during the credits, like we've got this shot of these people dancing around this bonfire, and it's upside down, and it's so simple and so lo-fi and such a like weird thing to do. And actually, I think it was. A product, I don't, I'm not, like, not that it was a happy accident, but it was a product of the filming. They were filming that on a Steadicam, I think, and I, th- I, I might be making this up, right? But I think the way to mount the camera to get the shot that they wanted to get, they had to mount the camera upside down on the bottom of the Steadicam as it's kind of hanging, Right. So when the rushes come in, the rushes are upside down, right? So I said to Mark, like, do you want to flip these round, you know, the right way up? Because you've obviously, you've stuck this camera on there. You didn't, you didn't, when you started shooting it, you didn't think, oh, we're going to, let's shoot this upside down. You just had it upside down because that's how the camera team had to mount the camera. 
But I think Mark must have been watching it on his monitor on the day and just been like, this is trippy, you know, brilliant. Like, let's use this. And we, we called it the jellyfish shot because it's meant to feel like this, like almost organic jellyfish of all these like tentacles that are hanging down from these people. There's a, in National Treasure, we had a similar shot at the end of one of the episodes. A similar in the sense that it was an expressionistic abstract image and it was Robbie Coltrane in the shower screaming and it's just this you know top top half but naked Robbie Coltrane in the shower looking down the lens and Mark uh, had it played backwards so all the you didn't even realize but all the rain was that rain all the shower water was actually coming up off him and going up and he kind of looks up at the end and it's like this this judgment from God sort of thing and, and this sucking up of of what is bearing down on him sort of thing and i remember like constant conversations during reviews like are we are we keeping this shot in reverse of of robbie coltrane in the shower during the credits is that are we gonna keep that and similar on this like are we really keeping this shot of these upside down people this fire for for the credits and of course, now it's the shot that we all love. You know, we absolutely love that shot in the credits. It's funny because um, so often uh, TV spec requirements don't allow it. You know, they want the credits to be shrunk down. They want, you know, that moment at the end of Channel 4 when it's like, what's up next? They want that gone. And we've been lucky enough to push through and, and you know, try and do something creative during the credits that they've let us keep each time but yeah the the, the general um guideline is that you're not allowed to do what we've done there sometimes you need to break the rules to create something cool right yeah 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 for sure i mean it's not breaking the rules for the sake of breaking the rules even it's just i i, I feel that and and you know i want to i want to i guess i really want to end by saying that like we do all these things and we experiment in all these ways but I really hope it's not just for the sake of weirdness and fucking things up. It's always for a, it always, I hope serves the story and serves, you know, the film in, in what we're attempting to do. Cause otherwise, you know, it would just be pretty lame. <laughs> That's a nice way to sort of wrap up third day i have a one last question which is not third yeah, day related yeah. and because you do a series of tweets called favorite edits and there's some there's films and shows that you pick that i absolutely love so uh, maybe it's just a uh, bias that i have so there's some that you've picked like the conversation the jinx the imposter and yeah just i just love those choices i love everything sort of about those shows and especially the jinx where the one that you posted is a massive spoiler of it but it is one of those where it's a happy accident that somebody had just found that clip by logging everything and it was such a actually i'm not gonna say what it was but it was it was just a sort of like wow i can't believe they were sitting on gold so i guess my final sort of question would be is in your eyes what makes a good edit and what makes it and then how does it become your favorite sort of edit yeah like it's it's a great question and it you know it's a question that i'm trying to answer with those with that series of tweets there there is amongst editors 
there is this conversation, right, that it's very hard to judge editing, right, because you don't know as a viewer what they had to edit with, right? Actually, some edits would be very easy because the material they've given makes it very easy, whereas something that you might not give any artistic merit to at all was amazing what the editor did because of what they've done in the in the edit suite to make it into what it is so that is a conversation we all have and we're all very aware of. you can't judge an, an, an edit without judging the rushes but then I think about that a lot and I think about the craft quite a lot and I love the craft and I love seeing what other editors do and I think I really do take that stuff in when I'm watching stuff and this was a way of me really just cataloging these these ideas and these things that inspire me as an editor like so that when i sit down and work i can try and hope and aspire to to do something as well as these other people have done it and it's finding things i try and in that series of tweets i'm trying to find things that really have been or i feel have been done by the editor right get i'm trying to give a bit of praise to the editor or to the editor's and acknowledge where it is that, that great editing's happened. I, I guess I was inspired as well. There's a brilliant series of tweets called One Perfect Shot, which is, you know, GIFs of, of single shots from films, like like the, the, the duration of the shot, but but single shots. And I think for a cinematographer or for a director or even for an editor, for a, for a film fan, that is something that everyone can really love. Uh, there's also script pages, brilliant dialogue, brilliant writing. I really wanted to, even for my own benefit, so that I can learn and so that when I sit down and, and try and edit something, I feel empowered to do these things. That's why I started collecting them. And, you know, sharing those on on Twitter. And, and you know, I hope it, it, it does start a lot of conversations and, and I do find myself talking to a lot of people about it now. I, I, I feel... Hopefully that the reason I do it is to try and learn, yeah, learn more and, and by looking at these things, become a better editor myself, really. I like that you're dropping knowledge for people as well. But then there's also your, you're giving praise, as you said as well, you're giving praise to uh, an editor or editors. Then also you're kind of introducing new media to people that they might have not seen before or like certain certain films that people might have no idea about and then they go back to watch it and then there's stuff that they can learn from it as well i think it's something like the conversation which i personally think is a very underrated film and i know in that sort of i won some oscars i know it won some oscars but as in <laughs> if you think about uh the four films yeah, yeah. that yeah, yeah. um that was made at the same not the same time but um yeah of course front yeah. ford coppola made Everybody talks about Godfather 1, 2 and Apocalypse Now, but the conversation kind of gets a little bit overshadowed by them when you're kind of watching it and it's actually just like, it could potentially be better than the other three that I mentioned. But no, it's it's really cool to sort of get an answer of what the, is the idea behind the favourite uh, edits and sort of get an understanding of each one, each show or film that you tweet out. So, and I guess on that note, I would like to say thank you so much for your time, Simon. Uh, cool, thank, thank you for discussing and coming on and talking about uh, 
the third day. It was, it was really cool. It, it gave it gave gave me even more insight, and I think I might go back to watch your episode again just to pick up on little things that you've pointed out and what you've said. Well, let me know when you've watched episode three, which is so the the, the series is kind of split into two chunks of three episodes. So this is like the middle of of the first three. So yeah, let me know when you've watched the the third one, the third okay. day. And then yeah, see if see if you've understood any of it. I <laughs> know <laughs> I'm sure I will. I think they it's building up to something, and I think that something is going to be something exciting and interesting. And I think I've predicted it. I don't want to say because in case I might spoil it. And I think from your and uh, because I can see your reaction, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't I mean, want to spoil I, I, it. I love I love the show. I t- like uh, I'm I'm as much a fan of the show as um as as you know a, a, a worker on it. Um, I think what they've done with the other episodes and, and and what Dennis has written and what you know Mark and then Filippo who directed the the second block it's my kind of telly. I'm very lucky that I've been able to work on on my kind of telly. No, that's great. Again, Simon, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you again. Cool. Thanks, Thank man. you very much. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.